everyone. What is up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwan Humes for episode 190 of the Let's Talk Wrestling. Jeez, I did it again. I did it again. Uh, Two weeks in a row. Podcast. (laughs) Today is Tuesday, December 15th. The year is winding down. This is our last show of 2020. And just like everyone else, we are ready to leave 2020 in the past. Looking forward to good things in the future. At least we hope that that's the case. If y'all motherfuckers will wear your mask and actually take this vaccine when it comes out. But don't listen to me. Please consult your doctor, consult a scientist, consult someone else who knows what the hell they're talking about because I'm not going to front there like I do. But what we do know is mixed martial arts and combat sports. Shawan Hume and I will be talking about that tonight because we got a, quite a bit to talk about. But Shawan, before we jump into the show, why don't you go first? What are you, um, how you been, man? How's, how's your week been? How are, how are things going your way? That was fine. Just busy at my job and just... You know, they uh just hitting with a lot of stuff, trying to p- people trying to figure things finish things out before the uh new year. So it's just a lot of work, but I can't complain. My kids are good. I take my other my daughter to go get her knee checked out on Tuesday so they can get another look at it and see what they're going to do, see if they need surgery or rehab or whatever. But I can't complain, man. Just so busy doing it, family. So, was stuff. it a, a full tear or a partial tear? Did they say what? I, I don't really know. We had an x ray and they couldn't tell anything, so they're sending us to a doctor next Tuesday and they're going to examine it or see their moving re- movement range and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll go from there. So they didn't do like an MRI or anything like that. They, they, they haven't, have not done that as of yet. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah. Trust me. I'm, I'm like another x-ray. We already did that, but just the way it goes, we'll figure it out after that. True. True. Well, how's she feeling? Is she moving around? Okay. And everything. Yeah. Just hopping around on her crutches, you know, that's about it. I mean, it's not the worst thing. There's much worse things that could happen. So I'm like, you play sports long enough, it's something's going to bound to happen, and you no, just happen to, you you're know. going to hurt something. Yeah, at some point. She, I mean, made this far with no real injury, so it's fine. It's just part of life. Play sports long enough, you are going to hurt something. But let's go ahead and um, talk about grown men and women hurting each other and doing it to get paid. Eh, they may not get paid a whole lot of money. But, you know, they get they get some coins dropped into their pocket because we had UFC 256 this weekend. And I will not lie, Shawan, coming into the show, I was like, this isn't going to be a good... Like, something was telling me this wasn't going to be a good card. I wasn't paying attention to it. But I'm glad that I was wrong because this showcase was really good from top to bottom. It was, I think, only 10 fights, which is an exceptional number for a UFC event. It was much better than the regular... 14 or whatever. I think they could, they could probably do like 8 to 10. That would be the perfect amount, perfect length of time for everyone. But this show was a very good show from top to bottom. We're going to start with that main event where uh, Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno fought to a draw. And after five rounds of action, I agree with this decision. I don't see too many people upset with this decision. I kind of feel like it's a lot akin to what happened when Frankie Edgar and Gray Maynard fought the second time, where it was like, okay, this fight was really a draw. Let's see them run it back. What did you think about the decision itself? Were you upset about that, or did you think that um, this card could have went to either one of the two guys? Well, the biggest, I mean, with the foul, it makes sense that it was a draw. The thing that was shocking to me was that, you know, he kicked him in the groin and 
and they called they let they took a point immediately. I mean, I've seen people get thumbed in the eye multiple times. I've seen people get kicked in the groin multiple times and not get a not get a point taken. So it was weird that he kicked him the first time he kicked him and they took a point from it. But if you consider the point taken out of it, then yeah, it's it was the right call. I mean, he basically would have had to like drop him at least drop him at least in one of the rounds maybe once or twice for him to to get a clean win. So you take you take the foul and you, the points taken, then yeah, it's a draw definitely. So did you agree with that foul being taken? I did because he had fouled a couple of times earlier in the card and it was or earlier in the fight and it was a bad low blow too. Like it wasn't one of those yeah. oh he was it was a grazing cup shot. No, this was a this was a full on I'm kicking a field goal and your nuts are the, like is the ball. I, I was kind of on the fence because once, like you said, he, he half fouled before, but that's not consistent with, with the UFC. I mean, we've seen people get thumbed two, three, four times. We've seen people grab the fence four or five, six times. You've seen people cover people's mouths a bunch of times. You know, it's like, I know, I know it's a different foul, but you've seen people blatantly foul multiple times and they don't and do the same thing over and over and not get called for it. So it was just seemed a little odd to me. I mean, it, if the ref felt he had to do it, I have to respect it. That's at the end of the day, that's all that matters. He felt it was necessary, so whether I agree, agree doesn't matter. It's what he did, and um, you know, I accept it. I mean, it was a pretty egregious one. I'm just, I feel like I've seen worse before. So with that foul going, then do you think that the fight was it was Figueroa's to lose, and he and it was only a draw because of that foul, or something? Pretty further? much. Do you think that the uh, I, fight I, I could have gone the other way? I don't think the fight. I think the fight would have kept going the same way it went prior to the prior to the foul, or the same way. I don't think anything would have fa- changed in the fight because of of who they are. Moreno's the kind, of, like I said, Moreno's more of a reactive. Uh, Moreno's a kind of reactive guy who fights in spots, and you know, and Figueroa's a guy who 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 who's a little bit busier, but he also has big spots of offense. He hasn't really had to fight somebody for five rounds, so I don't I don't really see stylistically. It wasn't like Moreno was going to all of a sudden become super slick or, you know, just an, a, a dynamic finisher. And it wasn't like Figueredo was going to be get too far away from what he did either. I can't see the fight going any differently. Only difference is that foul. And if that foul is not there, then Figueredo wins. So do you think that what you saw here was more of a testament to Figueredo's um, growth, maybe as a fighter or his development as a, as a fighter or... Was it Figueredo maybe taking a fight too soon uh, and having too quick of a turnaround? I don't, I don't, I don't think it was too soon. I mean, both guys are coming off the same turnaround. The only problem for Figueredo is he's a bigger guy. He's a bigger, stronger guy who I think has a hard time making the weight. So right before the fight on Twitter, I said the only way I see him losing this fight is if the weight, staying in that weight to diminish his body just because he never, he wasn't allowed to put more weight back on and then slowly cut it back down. He pretty much had to stay in a weight in a certain rate weight range was below his, his walking around weight. But outside of that, I can't say it really affected him because, you know, Moreno, they, they basically had the same time. Nobody had been training the whole time. They just basically went, went from one fight like a month ago into this one. So nobody really had an advantage. Nobody would had enough time to really scout the other person. You just basically came in with whatever, whatever your base level skills are. That's the thing about it. Nobody really had time to really tailor something past a certain point. It's basically, what is your fundamental game? Who are you at your core? And you step into the cage and, and perform. So looking, let's say, let's flash forward and say they run this fight back in three months. All right, three months and they run this fight back. 
How do you see it going down? Who do you think is the favorite and what's the outcome? I think you have to favor Figueredo. I mean, he's probably the better. He seems like the more consistent and more structured striker. He seems like more. Of a, he's more of a finisher. He's obviously bigger and stronger, hits harder. And to be honest, like when you see fight, to me, when you see fights like this, where you have a supremely or super gifted fighter and he fights a less gifted, kind of grittier, smarter fighter, unless that gifted fighter really falls off a cliff physically, the rematch usually goes the more gifted guy out outpacing that guy. And I don't, I don't know what else Moreno could do to get past Figueredo. He's not a bigger puncher. He's not going to physically bully him. And Figueredo handles his power better than Moreno handles his. And and I and I said this on Twitter at the night of the fight. I really feel like a fight like this took something out. It took something out of both of these guys, but it, it to me it took more out of Moreno. Like he's his kidneys have got to get be torn up. He's taking body shots from round one to round five. And even though he had huge moments of offense, the effect wasn't as dramatic as what Figueredo was doing to him. Like when he's in Figueredo, it's like Figueredo's tired. He did, I didn't get the impression Figueredo was hurt or Figueredo was overwhelmed or Figueredo couldn't handle the power or the aggression. I felt like his cardio wasn't up to par. But when it came down skill for skill, Figueredo was the more consistent fighter defensively and offensively. And he, he kind of controlled the pace of the fight. Moreno didn't really take over the fight until Figueredo lost a step. You know, once Figueroa slowed a step, that's when Moreno started get, taking over. He was always in the fight and getting his respect, but it, to me, he wasn't really he wasn't doing enough damage to really take over the fight. If not for that foul, it would have been a clear it would have been a clear win for Figueroa. So I don't I don't know how much better Moreno can be. The only the biggest chance the biggest factor I think it is once again is will Figueroa be able to make weight? You know, and if they put enough time between it, then yeah, he should be fine. But Outside of not making weight or, or something being jeopardized like that, skill for skill, I don't see how Moreno wins this. Moreno's still a reactive fighter. He's still not a great athlete. He's still not a big hitter. He's still not a great finisher. He can scramble. He can push the pace. He'll fight back. He'll never quit. He can extend you. But there's no big hole in Figueredo's game for someone like Moreno to take advantage of. Like if, if somebody tells me, he's, what's the technical advantage that Moreno has? Outside of, and outside of cardio, what's the physical advantage he has? I can't think of one. And I don't even think you can really you can really stand on the idea of cardio because Moreno looked good. Uh, excuse me, not Moreno. Excuse me, Figueredo looked good in the fifth round. So fourth and fifth round, where everyone was expecting him to fade, he looked like he still had plenty of gas there. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about it is, when you're a bigger, durable athlete, you can take like a round or half a round off because the guy you're facing isn't capable of just knocking you out. The guy you're facing isn't going to just take you down and hold you down and rough you up. So because he has his physical advantages, he can take he can take a you know, maybe half a round, a quarter round off here and there, and save save up his save his energy for big spots. When Moreno, if Moreno isn't fighting as hard and responding to everything, Moreno can't win a fight. He can't win a fight against Figueroa. He had to fight pretty much fight all five rounds hard for him to just be in the fight. There were moments where Figueroa wasn't doing very much. There's moments where Figueroa was taking rounds off. So Moreno was in the best shape. He was thorough. He was pretty much engaged the whole night. He was grinding on him. Everything Figueredo fired, he fired right back. He was taking him down. He was grappling with him. He's in extended exchanges for pretty much the whole fight. And he and without the foul, he still loses the fight. I mean, that's pretty much the best you've seen from Brandon Moreno. And the reason I don't think he'll do better in rematches is because he was depending on conditioning and he depended on his chin. Your chin's not going to hold up under constant assault like that. 
and the conditioning thing was pretty much even between both of them. So what's he going to do on his end that's going to turn the fight? That, that's, what, that's all I'm asking anybody. What's he going to do? Fight harder? Keep a higher pace? I don't know that he can fight at a higher pace. He was getting tired himself in spots. So what, what is he... What's what is, interesting what is, is that a lot of people... T- Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, what's his clear path to victory? If any, you know... What, I've, what I see in rematches, and it's very interesting, I can't remember who pointed this out first on a um, show I was, I was listening to, but when you have quick turnaround rematches like this, it usually favors the person that won the first time around because there aren't enough adjustments to make a lot of changes. And um, you see that a lot. You, see, you saw that with like TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt, for example, um, when they ran it back. Like when you run back these rematches or the flip side of that, you can look at Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo, who they, there was years between when they uh, fought and Henry was able to make adjustments and get better enough to win. You got to wonder how much time would Brandon Moreno need for something like that. And then on top of that, there's also the question of, Cody Garbrandt, does the UFC decide to jump Brandon Moreno with the bigger name? That could always hap- happen as well. Schwann, if they made that call, would you be upset if they switched out Garbrandt in for Moreno? And if you were part of Moreno's team, do you look at that and like, okay, this is an opportunity for us to learn how to beat both of these guys and be prepared for whoever is a champion on the back end? Well, if I'm Moreno's team, I don't think that's going to happen. Unless Moreno gets hurt and they have to put off the fight, if that happens, then yeah, he's, he's going he's gonna to get passed over. When you have a fight of the year type fight or one of the best fights, one of the possible three best fights of the year, there's no way that rematch doesn't get made because the fight didn't have a lot of appeal right off the bat. But when you have a fight like that and the first time the champion's really been tested, that's going to set the table for a rematch because of the nature of the fight. You know, you, any casuals that came across going to be like, oh, next thing these guys fight, I want to see that. All the hardcores want to see the rematch, so I doubt they get pushed over for it. Um, I mean, if they went the Cody route, it wouldn't really bother me either, to be quite honest, because, I, like I said, I don't think Figueredo is going to be in this weight class too much longer, and, and they might just want to get a, get a high return on their investment. The only reason I don't think it'll happen is, once again, this was like a fight of the year type fight. So to be honest, I don't I don't know that a matchup with Cody Garbrandt sells this sells as well as this rematch would. You know, the main reason I don't have anything against, if they skipped it is because I don't I've seen this fight before. I don't feel Moreno can do any better. I feel Moreno's pretty much showed everything he has. He's not going to take a huge jump athletically. He's not going to take a huge jump technically. And unlike Cejudo, Cejudo had a clear wrestling advantage. He was a better wrestler than DJ, and he was physically stronger. You know, some might even say he hit harder than them, had a better chin than them. He had a couple of physical advantages. He had one technical advantage. What's the advantage that, that Moreno has over Figueredo? Nobody's told me that. Bigger? No. Stronger? No. Better hitter? No. Better chin? No. More explosive? No. Better grappler? Not in the terms of finishing. Um, better striker? Not in the terms of effectiveness. I guess he might be a better wrestler. Maybe. Maybe. But that's by a small margin. He has no clear advantage. So when you have no clear advantage, how are you turning around a fight? He'd have to fight a perfect fight, which he did the first time. You're telling me he's going to have two perfect fights in a row? Not very likely. Not very likely at all. Well, Schwan, I'm not going to argue there, man. You had some pretty um, 
clear insight. And what do you think about um, Figueredo as a champion? Is this the start of maybe a big run for him? Or uh, is this, did he breathe a sigh of relief in this fight? I mean, I think he thought he won the fight regardless because consistently he was doing the better work. He, he, were you, when you have a guy who blows somebody out and just dominates people all the time, when a fighter can hang in there and hold their own or go tit for tat for, for a certain amount, then people kind of overestimate what's being done. I'm not saying that Moreno didn't push him. I'm not saying Moreno didn't have his moments where he was, he was even maybe winning the fight. But there was no point where Moreno was really in control of the fight. You, the, the, the quality of the shots landed, the work done, the consistency of the work done, who was able to handle whose power, who was able, whose cardio, it kind of, to me, it favored Figueredo. So... I think Figueredo, he's an interesting personality, and I think this might be a big run for him as a, for him as a fighter because of, of who he is, his style, and the success he's had. I don't know if it stays with the, the division because I don't believe he's going fight, to be fighting in this division a year from now. Maybe a year, year and a half from now, I don't believe he's going to be fighting in this division. I think he's got two more fights. He might fight. He'll fight Moreno. He'll fight Moreno in a rematch, and then he'll fight Cody. And if he would have beat Moreno, clearly, then he just would have fought Cody, and that would have been it. In my opinion, that would have been it for him. So is it a great run for him? Yeah. Great run for the division? Not necessarily, because they still don't have a lot of named guys in there. And this guy, if he leaves, is the biggest star in the division. Same thing as Henry Cejudo was, and Henry left. And once he left, the division started getting real shaky again. So the UFC doesn't really think long-term. They kind of just go by whatever they think is going to get them the biggest bang for their buck right now. And right now, he's doing it for the flyweight division. But if he leaves, then what happens? Who's the next biggest flyweight star in the division? Maybe, maybe, um, I mean, if Cody actually makes it, him. But yeah. you're right. Like he, and I also agree with you. I think he, I wonder what he's going to be fighting at a year from now. That is a very solid and very, you know, clear question. I think that we will have to kind of wait and see where that really plays out. Yeah, I would agree. So let's move on from there and let's look at this co-main event where we saw Charles Oliveira dominate Tony Ferguson for 15 minutes, nearly finishing him with a nasty, nasty arm bar. And dominate is the word that I really want to use here because the stuff that he was doing to Tony Ferguson was the type of stuff that you do to white belts, the type of stuff that you do to guys who don't really know how to grapple. And Ferguson was defending well. He was defending better in like the second round and the third round. But by defending, it was not getting finished, not necessarily finding a way out of super bad um, positions. And it looked bad. It, it got it, it got bad at some points there, Schwan. Um, what did you what did you see? in this fight here? And, and what are some of your thoughts about the way things played out across these 15 minutes? Well, the biggest thing is, and I said this before, Tony Ferguson, there, there's a couple things about Tony Ferguson that have been dramatically overrated. One is his striking. It's never been great. It's been good. But a lot of it's been because he's got a, he can throw a high volume. He's very aggressive and he's hard to hurt. When he hurts, he, he gets hurt. He recovers very quickly. His wrestling, as much as, as much as he wrestled NCAA this, wrestled high level that, he's never been much of an offensive wrestler. And to be quite honest, I don't know that he's a great defensive wrestler. I've seen lots of guys take him down. 
his biggest thing is being able to create scrambles or, you know, get his snap downs. But takedown for takedown, def- sprawl for sprawl, whatever you want to call it, he, he's never been spectacular. He's not some kind of bulletproof wrestler. And then lastly is his grappling. People keep highlighting how good a grappler he is, but the, the main thing is he's never really fought a fighter who's a high-level grappler or even really a competent one. Anthony Pettis is a guy who kind of just finds a submission and explodes into it. Even you ask Anthony Pettis to describe himself, I just find arms, I just find chokes. He can't explain it to you how he does it because his structure and his grappling is much like the structure and his striking. It's basic skills that he's athletic enough and tough enough to turn a, a right hand into a fight ending right hand and our, a, a, a possibly missed arm bar into a finished arm bar. That's a skill, but it's not a structured skill. Who is this dynamic grappler that Tony Ferguson has actually grappled and won? I mean, we saw, we saw how bad Justin Gaethje's grappling is, yet Tony Ferguson didn't have the wrestling or the grappling to, wrestling to get him to the ground to exploit a huge hole in his game. Donald Cerrone just got in exchanges. Who are these people that Tony has been just submitting left and right throughout the length of his career? Kevin, Kevin Lee? The Kevin Lee with notoriously bad, bad gas tank who, who tires when he fights guys? He can't steamroll and control? Who, are the, who is this top-level grappler that he's handled? Nobody. He's never really dominated any, any really good wrestlers or grapplers. So it wasn't shocking to me to see what Charles did to him because Tony's never had a guy who's afraid to engage with him in grappling. Most guys won't take him down because they're afraid they'll get submitted or he'll scramble and cut him up with the elbows. And so they're just, they're just getting extended exchanges on the feet. Charles Oliveira knows that Tony does not have the aggression to take you down. And from what he's seen, Tony, gets, Tony can be controlled on the ground. He, he can be controlled. He's been controlled and worked over before. It, it just, to me, it was just too obvious to see that coming. I had no, no doubt that Charles would be able to take him down. I thought Charles might finish him on the ground because Tony hasn't had to face a guy he's, he's had to actually be wary of on the ground. He's usually dictating the pace as soon as it hits the ground because guys are scared of engaging with him. He's facing a guy who wasn't scared to engage. And once that intimidation factor was gone, he, he had nothing for him. He was just getting stuck in spots and surviving. At no point was he able to mount any offense or really consistently get back to his feet or control position. He was just getting taken down and worked over. He, could, he, he, he literally had nothing he could do. So let me ask you this. Is this... Because you're talking about this like this was more of a testament on Ferguson's deficiencies and not what we've seen in Oliveira. Because Oliveira, he's, man, he's a grappler that a lot of people forget how sound his jujitsu is. You see a lot of those high level, um, you see a lot of those high level submissions that he gets. But in reality, he is a very good jujitsu player, so much so that I remember when he was supposed to do a, um, a well, not combat jujitsu match, but a regular uh, jujitsu super fight, and his opponent fell out, and they couldn't find anybody else to take his opponent's place because they were like, nobody wants to really fuck with him on the mat. So it, uh, talk to me about his skills and what you saw from him, and it, are his skills enough to really propel him to a, um, a actual title shot, or should we seriously consider him a title contender at this point in time? Well, the, the, it's not an insult towards Charles Rivera. It's not saying his skills aren't good, but the, the thing about it is, like, people were shocked that he's able to do this to Tony. And I'm like, why are you shocked? That's like saying you'd be shocked that Mackenzie Dern submitted Random Marcos. Yeah, Random Marcos has shown good grappling, good scrambles, good wrestling and all that stuff against 
subpar wrestlers and subpar grapplers and 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 MMA grappler types. Of course, yeah, she said she looked good against them. Or like when Felice Harry got submitted by Ron Jaroba. Oh, you know, Felice Felice isn't on that caliber of of grappler. She's not that caliber of of wrestler. She doesn't fight in a manner that allows her to navigate her weak spot. Tony Ferguson doesn't either. I'm not saying Charles isn't very good. He is very good. But Tony Ferguson is the kind of guy who who will take any advantage he has on the feet or on the ground and throw it out the window to impose his will and to break you. I've said it before. You attack someone's weaknesses to beat them. You attack someone's strengths to break them. Tony figures out whatever your strength is. He, he's going to beat you with that so he can break your will and take the fight over. <clears throat> but it's a, it's a bad plan to take. And this time he got exposed because he's not as athletic and dynamic and energetic as he used to be. Charles Oliveira, the biggest improvement in Charles isn't so much his skills, it's his state of mind. When he's grappling now, he's not exploding into submissions. He's not getting, burning all his energy and takedowns and then trying to instantly clear position to look for a submission. He used to force submissions. He'd be exploding into them and hit these dynamic, tricky submissions, which is great. But once he faced some guys with some seasoning in their game, some, some sense of awareness and some decent athleticism, he, he'd go for the submissions, end up getting reversed, and, and then getting the hell beat out of him. He'd go for a takedown, waste energy trying to chase takedowns, get tired, and then get the hell beat out of him. What's separating him now isn't so much that his skills have improved, it's that he's setting things up better. He's setting his takedown attempts up better with his striking. He's using a footwork to pressure somebody instead of just running in with strikes, hoping that he can he can transition to a takedown. When he gets a submission, he's, when he gets a, on the ground, he's securing position, controlling them, beating them up, then searching for the submission. He's not putting himself in bad spots where he's going to be forced to explode one time, two times, three times. And when he gets in an advantageous position, instead of instantly looking for the finish and exploding for the finish, he's setting it up, he's breaking the guy down, he's securing position, he's wearing him down, and then he's looking for it. He's just not as haphazard as he used to be. He was always a high-level grappler, but if you look at his earlier fights, he wasn't always grappling like a disciplined grappler. That, that's the difference between the high-level ones and the average ones. The, the, the high-level ones, they look like they're just skipping steps, but really they're just going through the steps so quickly because it, they know them so well. When Oliver was on his early win streaks, he wasn't doing that. And when he was losing, he was wasting all his energy trying to get the fight to a certain spot or trying to finish once he got to it. He, he was in a hurry. Now he's no longer in a hurry. Now he believes he can break someone down. He can walk someone down. He can take his time to figure them out and then submit them or finish them on the ground with strikes or whatever he wants to do. It's more control. It's more structured. And it's more deliberate in what he's doing. And that's been the biggest improvement. I'm, I'm sure he's gotten better on the ground. I'm sure he's added some new skill striking. I know that for a fact. But the fact of the matter, all the skills you add don't matter if you're just going to attack in a haphazard, irresponsible way. You can, you can get trained by a K1 kickboxer. Your, your kickboxing skills could be A1. What does that matter if you, you put your chin up in the air and start swinging? It doesn't matter. You could be a black belt in jujitsu. What does that matter if you take someone down and you just keep exploding into submissions instead of taking your time, sapping their energy, securing position, and safely attacking their arms or legs so you won't be countered or reversed? and end up eating shots and be dead tired and pinned and finished out by guys. It's all the state of mind. It's how he's setting things up. It's how he's approaching them. It's how he's executing. His execution has gotten better mentally. And that's been a separation. He doesn't put himself in spots to be pressured. He doesn't put himself in spots to absorb a bunch of punishment. He doesn't put himself in spots where he's wasting energy trying to get to the fight to the ground. There's more method to his madness, and that's the difference. He's not making the mistakes that's exposing him. That's the biggest improvement he's had. Poise, maturity, and more more deliberate structure to what he's trying to do. 
I mean, there's really no comeback for that because that's that's really what I've seen from him too. What I've always been concerned with, and why I, I go back to some of his fights, like for example, his fight against Jeremy Stevens or his fight against Cub Swanson, where Charles Oliveira just I don't want to say allowed himself to get knocked out, but it seemed like, but it seemed like he just wasn't prepared for those fights. Yeah, he I mean, was much more prepared on Saturday and much more calm, even when because he did get hit with a couple shots. Even when he would get dinged, it's like okay, he's going to stay and stay in the right mindset to keep himself safe and go back to the game plan rather than panicking and yeah. finding himself in a position like with, like he was with Paul Felder when Paul Felder was on top of him basically. You said it perfectly. You said it perfectly. Instead of panicking, I think a lot of his earlier success in fights, I said this last week, it was aggression, length, and athleticism. He had skills, but he leaned on aggression, athleticism, and length. And once, once those things weren't enough, you got in a bad position, he either quit or he just legitimately got finished because he couldn't get out of it. When you have a plan and you developed it and you structured it and you have faith in it, then even when you're in bad spots, you don't. it's like a team going down by 10 or 15. When you have a plan and you trust in your teammates and you trust in the coach and you trust in your system, you, you'll stick with the plan or you'll make adjustments so you can slowly work your way back in. But when you have no faith in your teammates, you have no faith in your coach, you have no faith in your system, you're going to go up and start throwing up threes with 24 seconds on the clock. That ain't going to work for anybody. So he, he's gotten poised. He's gotten more faith in his team. They've developed him correctly, and they've addressed the holes in his game. Not so much technically. Obviously, they, they did, but they built on the things he did technically, and they put him in a mindset so that he would avoid the spots that would expose his weaknesses. I don't think he's any more durable than he used to be. I think he's probably he might be the same, if not less. I don't think he's any better in certain situations. He just knows how not to get in those situations. It's like if you're an alcoholic, just stay out of the bars. Yeah, you got discipline. Yeah, you got willpower. But you don't need to be a bar anyway. Just avoid that altogether. Don't test yourself until you get forced to test yourself. And that's all he's doing. He's making a buffer between his weakness and his opponent. So his opponent has to go through one, two, three before they get the weakness. Most guys aren't good enough to. And he's good enough to, they might get past one, they might get past two, but he can recover and start all over again. So all he did was put a buffer up He's and and kind of shield his weakness, hide his weakness a little bit. Uh, one thing, I did want to ask you one question, though. Were you shocked by Tony? Because, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have as much experience in grappling or, or even wrestling as you do. Were you shocked by what you saw from Tony? I mean, had you seen anything prior that made you think that he'd be on Charles' level on the ground? You hear me? Sorry about that. I was, I was, I was talking on mute. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't the fact that it was a second or third takedown that was working. It was the fact that it was the um, that he was scoring with the first takedown, and he was getting those types of takedowns where it was like body lock, lift you up, take you down type of, of, of finishes there, and that Tony wasn't able to stop any of them, and he was finding himself on his back, finding his guard immediately past, getting stacked like. You don't stack past guys who are a high-level grappler. You don't. Like, stack passing people are what you do to bully white and blue belts. You don't do that shit to people who are high-level 
um, competitors. And he was stack passing uh, Tony Ferguson like it was nothing. So that is what kind of stood out to me from this fight. And it was like the ability that Oliveira had to cut through the guard and get to the positions that he wanted to with very little trouble. And you never saw, you never saw Ferguson retain guard. You never seen, saw him shrimp out and get to a better position to maybe protect himself. None of that. There were a couple of moments where he was able to get his feet up on a cage and maybe roll over. But Oliveira just basically would step over and use like a neon belly type of situation and move right on. So that is what kind of stood out to me. You know, and, and, and once again, you've seen a lot of his fights. Who was the guy he's fought prior who would have the skills and the confidence to try that against a guy who's as haphazard with his grappling as Tony? Because, you know, Tony will just reverse himself, flip himself. Who's the guy who has that kind of confidence in his skill set? Because Charles is confident he can control you and finish you on top. He's confident he can finish you in transition. He's confident he can finish you from the bottom. Who's the guy that Tony's faced who's ever posed all three threats to him like that? The best grappler looking at the list of guys Tony Ferguson has fought is before this, maybe Donald Cerrone or Rafael Dos Anjos. But Dos Anjos is like a, he's back. more like a, he, yeah, he's like a take you down, pass your guard and do damage type of, of, of fighter. If that, he's not the type where he'll, like, if you look at some of the finishes, Charles Oliveira has submissions in, in MMA that aren't supposed to work in MMA. Like, that's how. They're, they're so ridiculous that he has finishes in MMA that aren't supposed to work. Like the, um, there was one that he had on, I can't, I w- want to say maybe the Hatsuhi uh, Hiyoki Anaconda choke or maybe the David Tamer Anaconda choke. One of those two were so freaking ridiculous. It was like, this is not supposed to work. But he's hit the Anaconda choke three different times in MMA. He's hit a calf slicer. He's hit so many different variations of arm bars, guillotine chokes. Like, this guy does what he needs to do to get the finish, and you're right. He finishes anybody from any position. Yeah, that, that was the only... I, and I, we have to admit, and we said this last week, Tony's taken some really bad beatings over the past four years. Every fight he's won, he's taken tremendous beatings. Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje. He, he's physically not the same guy he used to be, and... I said this on Twitter, and I said this all the time. When you fight in a style like him or Cain Velasquez, where it's high physicality, high volume, high engagement activity, you have to train at a certain level to maintain it. Same thing with Max Holloway. You have to train at a certain intensity to build that conditioning and that, that comfort with getting hit and that physicality. And then you have to fight that way against world-class guys. That means you're burning the candle at both ends all the time. That gives you a limited time frame where you're going to be elite and able to dominate. Now it's a it's a it's a testament to him that he's been able to be elite so long. I don't know necessarily he's been elite because he's beat a lot of non-elite guys on the way to this win streak, but he's at least been able to be in the elite category. But at some point, that begins to fade. And for a guy who leans that heavily on his durability and his cardio, when it goes bad, it's going to go real bad because that's the fundamental aspects of this game. It's no worse than you know you take ten percent of Max Holloway's chin away. Chin away, he's not he's not Max Holloway anymore. You take 10% of Tony's chin away or 10% of his, 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 his volume or activity away, he's not Tony Ferguson anymore. He's just a, a long, tough guy with decent, with decent grappling and decent striking. But he's no longer world class. So before we move on to the next fight, let's talk about um, Charles Oliveira. How do you see him shaping up against the top three in the division? Maybe right now, if, if we had to look at it, it's probably just from a ranking standpoint, the 
Justin, Connor, Michael Chandler, and, and Justin Gaethje, how do you see him facing those four men? The Chandler is 50-50. The problem with it, him is I, I still don't think I don't I still don't think that Oliver is any more durable or recovers any better than he used to. He just got more structure. Chandler's got who can blow anybody out of the cage instantly. He hits that hard. He's that dynamic early. The problem is he can't catch like he pitches. So if Charles can navigate that first round, kind of extend him, get through a couple rough spots, have him fall around, pick him apart with a jab, the front kick, and when they go to the ground, control him and not let him just explode with strikes or explode into better positions. Then yeah, after the first round, I could see him taking over. I could see him. I could see him landing something big on Chandler and possibly finish him. That's just 50-50 because Chandler's just as likely to finish him in the first round or two. Um, against Poirier, Poirier might be the best guy he has a chance to because Poirier is a slow starter. Poirier's wrestling defense is not great. He always goes to that guillotine shot. I mean, he goes for it even when he shouldn't. He went against it. He used it against Khabib, and I have no idea why the hell he would try and do that against Khabib. So his wrestling's not really great defensively. His grappling isn't really great defensively. You know, offensively is all right, but he he's not really known for technical positioning, his ability to pass guard, transition to better position, or finish you with a variety of submissions. He's pretty meat and potatoes. He's also got finishing power, but once again, he's such a slow starter, and you've seen some slippage in him. I mean, he went tooth and nail with Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker's maybe got world-class elite toughness. Dan Hooker does not have world-class elite striking skills, grappling skills, or wrestling skills. He's like an averagely skilled fighter with a really good camp and a really good chin. And he, he, he went life or death with Dustin Poirier. Um, Connor, Connor knocks him out. He can't get Connor down. He can't hold Connor down. I don't think he can really submit him. And even though he's gotten more structured in the setup for his takedowns and the setups for his strikes, I think Connor's too accurate. I mean, I saw Connor come off a two year break and he actually won around against Khabib. He did better against Khabib than Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier did after winning four, five, six fights in a row. There's levels as fighters, and Connor's on a way different one than um, Mr. Oliveira. And as far as Khabib, I don't see how he beats him. He can't, he's not going to take him down. He can't fight at pace with him. He doesn't have the physicality to, to gain positions on him. And quite frankly, he's not going to, Khabib can hurt him with any shot he throws. I don't know that he can do the same to him. Khabib's taking fire from Connor. He's taking fire from Justin Poirier. He's taking fire from Justin Gaethje and live to tell about it. I mean, Oliveira got knocked out by Donald Cerrone, who's never been a big hitter. So I don't need, I don't know that he has the physicality or the cardio to get the positions he needs to. I know he doesn't have the wrestling. And if Khabib puts him on his back, he's just likely to submit him or just beat him with an inch of his life. So I, I'd say against the elite guys, Chandler would be the best bet for him. No, excuse me, Poirier would be the one I think he could beat. Chandler is like a 50-50 fight. I guess you could throw Dan Hooker in there because people talk about him as lead now. I think he beats Dan Hooker. But against Connor and Justin Gaethje and Khabib, he can't. He, I don't think he can beat him. I, I don't think he has the athleticism or the physicality. He has to pay a certain price to get to those guys. And um, these guys are still in their prime. They're not faded. And he, 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 can't, he can't afford a cover charge to get into that club. That's a great way to close it out. That's a great way to finish that there, sir. We got a couple other things from this card to talk about as well. Um, Mackenzie Dern, close decision in her fight with um, uh, Yarn, Yarn, whatever her name is. I, I can't even look at it. Yarn Yeah, Jandaroba. There you go, Jandaroba. What are your thoughts about this? Who did you have winning 
this fight? And did you think that Mackenzie Dern actually pulled out a win or was it closer than thought? Uh, it was closer than they thought just because I didn't think Vanderobo would have the grit she had on the feet. Now, Mackenzie Dern is a terrible striker. She's big. She's strong. She, she's got some of the best physical tools in the division. She's big. She's strong. She hits hard. She can take a good shot. She's aggressive. She's fast. But her graph, her striking is very inaccurate. It's not very well set up. It's not very executed. She's off balance a lot. She's She stands in position where she can get countered. She loads up a lot so you can see her shots and kind of shield or roll with them because she doesn't throw them in combination. It's kind of big winging shots, and she throws more flurries in combinations. But the fact of the matter is she's not afraid to get hit, and she hits very hard, and she's not afraid to throw. And she basically <laughs> won the fight off of volume and power. She landed the bigger shots against Vanderoa. Vanderoa was hitting her with knees and elbows, shots that should have really ended the fight. And she really couldn't ever consistently back back um, Dern up. But when Dern was hitting her, Dern was sending her into the fence, and she was hitting her with glancing shots and wide shots you saw coming a mile away, and she was still rocking Vanderoba, backing her up against the cage, and um, forcing her to cover up. And when Vanderoba hit her, she was still firing back at every time. So at no point did I feel Vanderoba, she might have been landing cleaner, but never felt like she was in control of the fight, because I don't think she ever really hurt Dern, and, and she was never able to put enough damage on her where I'm like, oh, she's taking over the fight, Dern's about to go, or Dern's on the defensive. I never got that impression. If, if Dern would even had one takedown attempt, one successful takedown attempt, I don't know that the fight would have made it three rounds because physically she would have just got positioned and pounded her out. But her wrestling is so terrible that it also hinders her striking because you don't, have to be, you don't have to respect her wrestling. So she can't trick you with level changes or fakes to set, to set you up for the overhand right or you know fake like she's going to go for a clinch and then change levels and punish the body. One, she doesn't have the striking acumen to do that. But two, her wrestling's so terrible that nobody respects it. So it, it kind of it kind of hinders the effectiveness of striking because it's so one-dimensional and you don't have to worry about anything else until you're on the ground and she can't get you there. But if you go by activity and who landed the harder shots and who took the shots better, um, Mackenzie Darren clearly won. I mean, it's close, but she clearly won. Yeah, it was a really close fight. And it's one of, another one of those ones where... I don't think you could have been mad either way. It would have it would have went. So we we can uh, we can kind of nod our head and and say that this was. This I just have wasn't I have one question for you. With a person with Mackenzie, because I talked about this on Twitter as well. You see her size. You clearly see how strong she is when she gets her hands on people. She's backed up even the be biggest girls. Even when um Rebus was throwing around, she was able to get back up, and not up. And that wasn't all skill. That was physical horsepower. Have you ever seen a person as physically gifted as her with, from a grappling background who is such a terrible wrestler? Like, she's bigger, stronger, more explosive than all these girls, and she's a grappler. And, I mean, Ashley Yoder was stuff stuffing her takedown. Ashley Yoder was stuffing her yeah, takedown. Yeah, her takedowns are not good. And she is, is – I've always said this. She uses, like, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu takedowns that just – don't have a space in MMA because people know how to defend those. Like the single legs, the, she tries to, what she tries to do is she tries to do the old Damian Maya where she just wants to get a connection with you and then pull guard, which, you know, it might work every now and then. It, like some, some women may try, may try their luck as you saw with the last lady that she faced before, Janjarova, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, uh, Marcos, but if you, if you're fighting somebody like Amanda Rebus, who isn't going to play that game with her, she's not going to win 
those type of fights until she can get the type of wrestling takedowns. Like she needs to be working with someone like a Sarah McMahon, some someone along those lines, or I'm trying to think of some like other high level wrestlers that she needs to be working with who can help her score takedowns. I, I feel like if she could because develop she even a, a get, competent wrestling game, she'd be elite. I mean, she could even be competently decent at wrestling. She'd be a top top three fighter. We were just talking about Charles um, Oliveira earlier. His like he doesn't even have like the most solid of wrestling games. It's more it, like he has his set of takedowns that he's able to finish with, and a lot of times he's so much bigger than guys that helps him finish a lot of those takedowns. But if Mackenzie Dern was able to grow her wrestling in the same way he has in these last ten years, she would be a serious serious problem in um, this weight class because there's no one on the ground that's going to be able to deal with her. No one. I don't care who you think you are. If, if your name isn't like a Michelle Nicolini who is fighting in one or someone along those lines, if Mackenzie Dern gets you down, she's going to submit you. Yeah. I, I, I also think if, she, if her striking got a little bit more cleaned up and she was more comprehensive with it, maybe she could open up takedowns if she punched in combination, learned how to feint and jab consistently, that kind of stuff would open it up, but ultimately her takedowns and her ability to finish takedowns is so poor that it, it maybe it wouldn't matter either. But with her athleticism, you just would think she'd be able to find her way into a takedown some way, somehow, just being off, just off being a better athlete than the people she's facing. Yeah, because she, she, she would be a real problem if she, um, if she was scoring better takedowns. Uh, let's talk about Kevin Holland real quick. Because him and that ridiculous finish he had over Jacare, basically knocking him out from his knees. So Kevin Holland is a guy that a lot of people are talking about in the oddest of ways. He goes out there, he takes short notice fights, he wins, stopping people, and people are not giving him the benefit of a doubt. Even Dana White called him Big Mouth or something like that because he doesn't want, he didn't want to sign him to the UFC, which you know is. There's so many problems with that whole conversation to begin with, but I don't want to take this whole show to dive into that. Let's talk about Kevin Holland, the fighter. What do you see when you watch him fight and you watch him score knockouts like this? I mean, it's just the kind of thing that draws attention to you. It's like, you know, something interesting. I mean, how many knockouts have you seen somebody land with an actual strike, like a hand strike off their back? That's, it's one of those things that can go viral. They can get you some attention that builds momentum. You know, and, and doing it against a guy who at one point was elite like Jacare, it's just the kind of thing that gets you just enough momentum where you you have the right, you can call your shot and maybe get whoever you want when you call your shot. It's like the opportunity that most fighters hope for, you know, to have a, a fight that's interesting enough and a finish that's dynamic enough where you have leverage, where the UFC is going to kind of push you, not because they want to, but because they have to. He's in a position where the UFC has to push him. He's in a position where the UFC has to maybe listen to what he's saying a little bit more because now not only does he have four or five fights behind him as wins, he also has this unique and this unique and once in a lifetime or maybe twice in a lifetime type type finish over a high level fighter. So he's as hot as he's gonna be right now outside of becoming a champion. And um, you know, this this is the kind of power the kind of situation that most fighters in the UFC hope to have and, and to be quite honest, ninety percent of them never get. But is he a true threat, or is he just someone who's talking big game right now? Um, I think he's got enough skills to be a true threat. I mean, he's he's balanced enough. I don't I don't know that he's a 
it's like I wouldn't pick him to beat Adesanya, but now that Yoel Romero's gone, do I see him beating Robert Whitaker? Mm, probably not. Do I see him beating? You know, do I see him beat who else is in there right now? Actually, I mean, actually, division is really kind of wide open if we think about it. Or there's Costa. Paulo Costa. Could he beat I him? Just, could he beat? Um, there's guys at 85. Like, I mean, he, he could beat. Cosmo, I like, think he, he could beat Brenton. He he called out uh, Tameoff. Could he could he beat Tameoff if he moved back up to 185 for that fight? Yeah, I mean, I think he could beat him because Tameoff isn't really proven. I mean, he he hasn't really faced a guy who can push back. He's basically had it his way. He's basically had his his way and used his size advantage and his physicality to to to, to dictate pace in these fights. That's not going to be as easy with someone like a Kevin Holland, you know, who's a who's a pretty good athlete and who's not a small middleweight either. You know, I mean, there's Derek Brunson, and Brunson's IQ is so hit or miss. The one fight he looks like an all-time great, the next fight he looks terrible. You got Uriah Hall, great athletic talent, but a guy who has a hard time pulling the trigger, a guy who's a hard time finishing, a guy who has a hard time putting consistent rounds together in a fight. That's another guy he could beat. But as far as, like, the elite elite guys, do I see him beating Robert Whitaker? I don't know that he'd be able to outwork him on the feet or damage him enough on the feet. And I don't know that his wrestling is good enough there. He could put him in positions where he'd be able to finish or threaten him. So as far as the elite, and there's really only really one guy who's close to elite in the division would be Robert Whitaker. I mean, maybe Paulo Costa, who's who's such a physical and big, strong fighter that it'd be hard for Holland to get to the spots he wants to. But anybody outside of that, I'd say he's 50-50 with. Chris Weidman, he's more durable than Weidman. He can grapple a little bit. He's strong. He's athletic. Likely that he knocks him out. Kelvin Gastelum isn't even in the discussion anymore. And the guys I, I mentioned before, Uriah Hall, he's as good as he is physically, he's just so inconsistent mentally. Derek Brunson, as good as he is physically, he's just so inconsistently mentally. Um, who's the guy? The one who's coached by Edmund. Great athlete, has good striking skills, but he doesn't have the cardio or physicality to, to win fights when he's drawn out in extended exchanges. So it's I mean, right now, he, he'd probably be, you know, at the top of the division. I mean, there, there's, I can't, maybe one or two guys who I could, who I would clearly favor over him right now. And I don't think Kevin Holland's a fi- great fighter, but the middleweight division isn't nearly as deep as it used to be. I mean, they, they, they don't have a lot of elite talent in there right now. And if nothing else, he's an elite, ath- he's, he, for the division, he's an elite athletic talent. All right, sir. I'm not going to disagree with that. We got a couple other topics, so I want to kind of breeze through the rest of USC 256. What else stood out on this card to you? Is there anything else you would like to discuss on this show before we move on to other topics from tonight? Um, I mean, the Tisha Torres fight, Sam Hughes, that fight was basically Tisha Torres versus um, Brittany Van Buren, except Sam Hughes isn't as as athletic or or physically strong as um, Van Buren. The reason I mentioned this fight is because it's just an example of how much experience matters and, and how much your quality of opposition defines who you are as a fighter. Sam Hughes has been a fighter who's gotten by on her physicality, her ability to grind on people and, and physically impose her will on her. As soon as she wasn't able to do that, she had no answers. Tisha Torres isn't a knockout striker. Tisha Torres isn't the kind of person who, you, who has a number of doctor stoppages wins or TKO wins or KO wins. And she scored her first one in, in what's got to be like, what, three, four, five years? Since against, being in the UFC. That yeah, was her first that, finish since being she has, in Octagon. She hasn't stopped anybody. And she's, we've seen fights where she's landed, you know, like 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 strikes on somebody. So it just shows you how much experience plays. And when you fight, face a more experienced opponent who can put you in some spots you haven't been in and expose you to some things you haven't been in, 
Sometimes fighters force themselves into mistakes. Sometimes fighters panic and end up talking themselves out of fights. Because basically, Sam Hughes said she couldn't see out of her eye. And you know if you're a fighter, the minute you say that, the fight's going to be called. You can't say, oh, I couldn't see out of my eye. Why'd they call the fight? You said you can't see. It means you can't defend yourself. And I, I would bet that she wish she could have that one back. And uh, secondly would be Junior DeSantos. Uh, I've said this before, and I'm going to say this again. His team, when they forced him to have an immediate rematch with Cain Velasquez, basically ruined him. When he had that rematch and he got beaten within an inch of his life, not once, but twice against Cain Velasquez, they essentially ruined that guy. And he has never recovered from the beating he took in that fight. That fight pretty much changed him from an all-time great heavyweight to a guy who is just a stepping stone at this point. <coughs> and, I mean, he's, his greatness still stands. He still beat Cain before, but he took tremendous beating and he's never recovered. And, he, and they never developed enough skills for him to protect himself. He still can't fight. He still backs up straight to the cage. His boxing, which everybody said was so great, is still based on his athleticism. He doesn't have defensive skills. He doesn't have really good wrestling skills. Even his offense is pretty much dependent on his athleticism. And the minute he can't assert that, he's he's just a victim. He's just no good. So I feel for him at this point. And after four consecutive KO losses, he really should be thinking about retirement. I mean, he's still got a name. He can still get paid somewhere. I just don't know that he should anymore. He doesn't have the skills to defend himself, and he no longer has the chin or durability to defend himself either. Do you think he gets cut from the UFC? I don't know if they'll cut him. I mean, they might let him have another fight or two, but he he should be he should be cut. I, I don't think he should be fighting at all. So much of his style was based on being a hard hitter who's explosive and durable. He doesn't have the durability anymore to fight the, the only way he knows how to fight. And against anybody who extends exchanges or puts pressure on him, he can look good for a round, but he's got so many holes that it's easy to exploit. He doesn't have the athleticism to make up for those holes anymore, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You, can, you, can bring your, you can bring your hands back, like Roy Jones, you can bring your hands back low when you're four times faster than somebody. What happens when you're, you're the same speed? That hands low thing gets you blasted. When you're super powerful and you can take a good beating, you can back straight up to the fence. When your chin, it can, when you can be finished with any hard strike you get hit to in the face, Backing up to the fence is a death knell. So he's had the same holes for almost 10 years in the UFC. What is it? He's been in the UFC for what, 10? Yeah, 10, 12 years. And he hasn't fixed any of these holes he has in his game. And now he doesn't have the durability or the speed to mask them. So I really think he needs to get out. At this point, we're talking about his quality of life two or five or six years from now is going to be dramatically impacted. True, sir. True. I'm not going to disagree with you uh, there, sir. Is there anything else that stood out to you on this weekend? Because we, I, we have we have a couple other news bits we want to talk about tonight. No, no, we can we can move on. We can move on. Awesome. So let's talk about um, some of these signings for Bellator. Perhaps the biggest news that came out on Monday is that they've picked up. Um, well, they picked up Anthony Johnson last week. We didn't get a chance to talk about that, but they picked him up, and they also picked up um, Yoel Romero on Monday. So they are building a very deep 205-pound division. If you look at who they have, they have Ryan Bader. They have um, Yoel Romero now. They have Anthony Johnson now. Leota Machida can fight at 205. Gabriel can fight at... uh, Nemkov, he's a champion. I I was about to mention him in a second because he just beat Ryan Bader. They have a list of guys there. Is this is this a, a two hundred and five pound division that would get you to watch? 
Yeah, I mean, the best thing about it is now they have more than three or four fighters in the division who have names, who have skills, who are accomplished, who fans also know and should, should at least on paper, be able to create exciting fights. That's the best thing about it. I mean, they still have they have a couple other guys in the division as well. I think you already mentioned Phil, Phil, right? Phil Davis. I did not. I forgot about Phil Davis. Phil Davis and uh, who's that? Like, the guy with the L in his name. Lorenz Larkin. You talking about him? No, no. Uh, Vassell. Linton Vassell. He won. He, he won recently here. So I mean, yep. they have a they have a solid what eight, nine, ten light heavyweights. So you can have multiple matches with that. So they actually have a division with some depth to it, which is what they need for all their divisions. So it's still not. I don't know that it's elite, but I can't, I can't say it's too far off from the UFC. Now that John Jones is gone, I can't say that a light heavyweight division is at least comparable with the UFC, if not better. And they got and with some of those guys, they have versatility. They, they can fight at a smaller weight, so it helps bolster the middleweight division as well, depending. Yeah, and I, I think that having a division like that will get some people to watch. What I'm interested in is if this trend continues – who are they going to look at signing that comes from the UFC? I think that that's important. It depends on who the UFC cuts and who are they going to be willing to, to spend a little bit of money on. That's what I'm interested in seeing in the next year to two as the, as the UFC talks about cutting these 60-plus fighters in the next few months. Well, once again, as I said, I, I know some managers from the uh, who, who work with fighters in, in Bellator, and it's not just a matter of name. It's because I've asked them, like, in other ways, why didn't they make an effort to Dustin Poirier? Why didn't they make an effort to this guy? And they said, it's a budget. They have to get their bang for their buck. You bring in a guy like Vincent Henderson, he was on win streak, which means they paid him big money. He lost his welterweight title shot. I think at one point he was, like, 0-2 or 1-3 in Bellator. He put some fights together. But they were never the kind of dominating, highlight real type fights that you would expect from a guy who's supposed to be a level or two ahead of these guys. It was all these grinding type affairs where even if he dominated, it wasn't it wasn't like, oh, he's so much better. It was like he held position, he outworked him. It wasn't that that separating separating kind of viral moment you wanted to see. And then against the best guys, he lost. So did they get their money back from for having Vince Henderson? Not really. It, it didn't turn anybody else into a big star. And the guy who got the biggest win over him now fights for the UFC. So it's not just a matter of bringing a guy who can bring in some fans. You need a guy who's going to be, who, who you can pay big money, is gonna have a big return on the, that investment, and there's so very few fighters who, who um, fit that description. So I don't know that they'll bring in guys who are like the 15th or 13th ranked guy in a division, or the 11th or 10th ranked guy in the division. They want either guys who have big names and big followings and are accomplished, or they want guys who are lower level guys who they can pay pay low and build up into to big name stars. So I, I don't know how many guys from the UFC are going to get cut and instantly fall into a Bellator. They might have to go win someplace else and then get back on Bellator's radar because Bellator is just not throwing money left and right to pick people up anymore. There's some good thoughts there. Um, speaking of Bellator, they just had probably their most dominant champion drop her title on Friday as well, or Thursday, I believe it was, where Juliana Velasquez defeated Elimile McFarlane by unanimous decision. Is this a changing of the guard? I expect them to have a rematch because of how long Lee Malay was basically doing her thing. But is this a changing of the guard in that weight class? Yes. I don't think they'll have a rematch right away. I think Lee Malay is going to take some time off. She seemed very relieved to not be the champion anymore. And to be quite honest, 
as good as she is, I, I saw this fight going this way. Alima Lay has fought good fighters, but everybody she's fought, she's had an athletic advantage over, she's had a size advantage, or she's had some kind of skill advantage. She's had some clear advantage that has allowed her to dictate it. Most of those girls weren't in her her um, caliber in some age, some area, usual multiple areas. When she fought um, when she fought Velasquez, am I saying that right? Yeah. When she fought her, she faced a girl who was bigger, who was stronger, who was a comparable athlete, and could ma- match her on the feet and match her on the ground. There was no, no clear advantage she had. If she was going to win this fight, she was going to actually have to literally outfight her and break her down and beat her. This girl was not going to beat herself. And and I don't think McFarland's ever had to do that against anybody in Bellator. They never had anybody who had enough tools to really make her have to fight. You know, they've pushed her a little bit, but for the most part, she's been walking over girls and dominating them. And this is the first opponent she's faced where she wasn't guaranteed to dominate her. And once that happened, you didn't see the same aggression. You didn't see the same technical wizardry. Not saying the, you didn't see any skill, but you didn't see the the clear separation that you usually see between her and other opponents. So I think she's going to take some time off and re reconsider things and maybe go back to the drawing board and then make another attempt at the uh, at going to the belt. But I, I don't think you're going to see anything immediately. They might even go the route of having a uh, tournament to see who the next, you know, a tournament just to get interest in the, in the division and to keep the, keep her, the new champion busy. But I don't think you're going to get a rematch anytime soon. You know, they were going, okay, well, I'm not mad at that. And I'm always interested in seeing like a change of the guard at the, at the top of some of these world class, especially in the women's divisions, because it allows them to do some um, fresh matchups in that group. Um, something real quick. I don't know if this girl's going to be like as big a, a selling point, though. That's my one concern. McFarland had kind of a, a following. I don't know that this new champion is going to have the same following. Yeah. Yeah, it took a little while because it took a little while for Lee Malay to get her following up as well, too. So I can see that being something as well. But again, you know, Bellator built McFarlane up into someone who fans had some type of interest in. So let's see if they can do the same thing for um, Velasquez. Now, she has a, a title. So let's talk about this weekend's car because UFC does have an event this weekend where we have um, Stephen Thompson and Jeff Neal fighting at the top of the deck. And there's a couple other good fights on this card as well, too. So what are your thoughts about this main event here, Schwan, and how do you expect to see things play out? Uh, it's a good fight. I mean, it, what everybody's hoping is going to be an extended striking battle. I, I can't imagine that Stephen Thompson is going to try to take him down and out-grapple him. I'd be, that'd probably be one, one of the biggest shocks you'll see in MMA to see Stephen Thompson initiating and, and extending grappling exchanges. Um, to me, this, this is similar to the fight with Anthony Pettis. It, Neil is the more active fighter. He's probably a better technical striker. But what separates him is how dynamic he is as an athlete, how dynamic he is as a striker with the power, and the fact that as good as Stephen Thompson has been, he is on the decline physically. He's not the same guy he used to be as far as his timing his, his, his own explosiveness. I never consider him one of the more durable fighters. He still has his vol- He still has his mobility. He still has the volume he throws. He still hits pretty hard, but I don't think he catches nearly as well as he used to. And I think he's lost a step as far as his speed. And I think Jeff Neal is really at his peak athletically. He doesn't have as much wear and tear on him. He's younger as far as his fights. And his fight is a 
time in the cage and his experience. And I think that's ultimately going to be the factor. A lot of Stephen Thompson's style is based on his ability to maintain and extend distance. And while he's always been good at it, regardless of who he's fought or how much of a gap he's been at, he's always been guys have always been have spots of offense, spots of success against him. The more dynamic, athletic guys drop him, rock him, kind of put him on his heels. The guys who are more, I guess, who aren't really elite athletically might land some shots, but they can't ever do enough to turn the fight or to, or consistently win rounds. Uh, Neil's got the power. Neil's got enough striking acumen that if he lands a good three to five punch combination, that might be it for Wonder Boy. The only question is going to be, can he get to the spots he needs to get into and can he stay in them long enough to do the damage he needs to do? Because you still got to get past Wonder Boy's sidekick. You still got to track him down around the cage, given his mobility and ability to change direction. That's very difficult. And the fact that he throws a lot of non-telegraph type kicks and strikes, it's really hard to find a rhythm. It's really hard to get to the to get the right distancing on him. It's really hard to put strikes together against them. But when you have big power, any one strike you land can disorient him and set him up for the rest of the power shots. Tyrone Woodley landed clean on him, but Tyrone Woodley can't throw in combination. If he did, he might have stopped Stephen Thompson. And Anthony Pettis, as hard as he hits and as explosive as he can be, I don't think he hits like Jeff Neal. So if Jeff Neal's willing to take a little bit of punishment and take some chances, do some body work, maybe throw some faint in there, I believe he can he can land he can land a shot and he can stop Thompson. Either way, it should be entertaining entertaining for as long as it lasts. But it's really going to come down to can Thompson get past that distance, those range controlling weapons, and can he pressure and cut the cage off to to land the shots he needs to land, not just one or two of them, but you know two to three, three to four, three to five. So that he can, he can land the shot he needs to land to turn the fight or end the fight. But is that really his style to land like combos like that, or is his style to counterpunch and throw that one one or two shots maybe to keep somebody off of him? Well, the, the I mean he can counterpunch, but the thing about it is, with somebody who's who throws the kind of kicks that Thompson does and moves in the way he does, it's a really rescue proposition. At some point, you're going to have to put something together. Because landing one counter shot on, on Thompson isn't, isn't hard. Guys have landed on him before. It's landed that second shot or having enough power on that first shot to get the job done. That's the biggest issue with him because when Thompson starts landing, he, he'll, have, he'll have a tendency to get real greedy. He'll start putting shots together, putting kicks together, and try to like just drown you in a wave of action or a wave of strikes. He can do that. But... The thing about it is Thompson in, in himself is really just an aggressive counterpuncher. He moves around, moves around, moves in and out, faints in and out, gets you to reach, and then punishes you for it. He's not really a guy who walks you down. He's not really a guy who chops you up. Even when you're not throwing strikes, he's countering your movement. He's countering your footwork. He's countering your positioning, even if you're not throwing a strike. So if Neil's just going to sit and wait and, and explode with one or two big shots, it, it's likely that he's just going to get chopped up. But as I said, Thompson isn't as young as he used to be, he's not as dynamic as he used to be. He still has, to be quite honest, he still has weak striking defense at the mid-range as far as his boxing, and he doesn't. He's not as he's not as athletic or as durable as he used to be, and he's never been. A, he's never had great durability, so I feel that Thompson just has to really land one big shot to get his attention, and then can finish him off with a short flurry. The question is. Is Neil going to be disciplined enough to navigate the di- the distance strike? So that's what it's going to come down to. He's got to navigate the distance to get where he needs to get to land those shots. I don't know that he has the length or the kicking game 
to challenge Wonder Boy in those areas. So his footwork, his feints, and his commitment to his shots has to be very, very high level in the few moments he gets. I would I, I would suggest attacking the body and kicking the legs, but I don't know how committed he'll be to that once Wonder Boy starts opening up. True, true. I'm not going to disagree with you there. There's a lot of other fights on this card, too. Is there Are there any others that stand out to you that you want to talk about? Um, Jose Aldo was in Marlon Vera. It, it's not really a sexy fight, but Marlon Vera, it's nice to see somebody get rewarded. He beat um, Sean O'Malley, and so now they're giving him Jose Aldo. And even though Aldo's had a couple losses, Aldo's still a big name. He's still got a big following. And if you can beat him, that's still saying something about you as a fighter. It's interesting to see how how... How will Aldo be when he's facing a guy who's not an elite athlete and isn't considered in the top three to five in the division? Has Aldo really slipped, or is it just a matter of him fighting nothing but elite guys and and that's caught up to him? If he loses to Marlon Vera, then the answer will have been he's really has declined past a certain point as far as being a fighter because now he can't even he can't be guys who aren't world class wrestlers, world class strikers, or world class athletes. So this is really a kind of a tipping point for him. He loses this fight with Vera. I think he's really got to look into um, retiring. If Vera wins, it's a good name win for him, and that'll be enough to move him up the rankings and maybe get him some more money or some more run. But in all in all, all honesty, if he beats Aldo, that just tells me Aldo slipped further than even I thought he had. It doesn't mean that he's actually – Marlon Vera would actually be a legitimate uh, – elite fighters, kind of like the Oliveira Ferguson thing. Yeah, you beat Ferguson, but is Ferguson really elite anymore? Or did you just beat a guy who's so faded that he's he's only elite in name? I'm not going to disagree with you there. So I'm looking forward to that fight as well. I want to see what Marlon Morales looks like coming out of out of his fight too. Um, there, This women's fight looks pretty interesting. I'm not too familiar with Santos, but we know who Jillian Robertson is. So that fight is also uh, intrigues, intrigues me as well. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about today before we close out this show was the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Their class got announced today, and it includes Floyd Mayweather, Leila Ali, uh, Vladimir Klitschko, Andre Ward, and Wolf, and Marion uh, Tremar. And that's a pretty interesting um, group there. So I wanted to ask you most about Andre Ward. Because I remember when he was coming up after he won uh, the gold medal in the Olympics, and a lot of people were really talking about him in a way that he could have been the next big star in boxing. Was he that, though? Did he live up to that moniker, and, and where did he may have missed that mark? Well, he was a big star in boxing, just like Demetrius Johnson was a big star in MMA. What neither one of them was was a crossover star, if you, know, if you see what I'm saying. Like, Mayweather became a crossover star. He was bigger than boxing. Oscar De La Hoya, crossover star. I mean, Oscar De La Hoya, I think he won a Grammy for an album he recorded, of all things. You know, Floyd became a crossover star. WWE, fighting YouTubers, you know, Money Mayweather, having producing his own 24-7 that everybody's adopted now. And he started that series. He gets a cut of everybody's money from that. Um, you got, let's see, Mike Tyson was a big was star bigger than the sport. Sugar Ray Leonard, guys like that were bigger than the sport. Andre Ward was just big in the sport. Hardcore people loved him. Coaches, other fighters admired him. Analysts admired him. But he ne- never performed in a manner that got the casual public's eye and caught their attention. In fact, I always compared him to Demetrius Johnson. All-terrain fighter, intelligent, had a certain cachet and a certain fan base, but he was never able to get his own fan base, which was 
Americans or African Americans, he never was able to inspire any real interest in them or real support from them. You know, he had pay-per-views, they didn't sell that well. His fights were never really highly, highly, highly ranked or highly rated. And outside of boxing, people knew who he was, but he wasn't the kind of celebrity, you know, like, oh, Andre Ward's at the game. Okay, well, yeah, that's big in the Bay or the Golden State Warriors game. That doesn't create a lot of interest anywhere else. But as a boxing star, yeah, he was a boxing star. And as one of the best guys to do it, at least in the past, what, 10 to 15 years, you could also say he was that. He didn't really have any egregious weaknesses. He was a great ambassador for the sport, staying out of trouble, had a good relationship, good father, presented himself well behind the microphone during his career and after, and always presented himself as a professional who respected other athletes and even even MMA fighters. I mean, part of Nate, Nick and Nate Diaz's vaunted boxing is the fact that he used to spar with Andre Ward. So as a star for boxing, yes. As a crossover star who, who, who built on the sport and it spread the sport a little bit more and drew in more fans and got more money for the sport, not even close. I mean, Adrian Broner is more of a star than outside of boxing than Andre Ward is. Deontay Wilder is more of a star. Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, these are all crossover stars. Ward was just a star in his sport. And not a superstar in his sport, just a star. A guy who had the name and the accomplishments of a star but never had the charisma or the pull to really get the money he wanted or get the fame he wanted or get the credit he wanted. He said he didn't care about it, but he always mentioned how certain types of fighters get fame, how certain types of fighters get certain kind of money. And he's right. But the fact of the matter is they appeal to the public and he never appeals to the public that way. True. I can can really follow up on that because I remember when he was at his height and how he was being promoted like a part of the Michael Jordan brand and all those different brands that he was a, a part of and built on his own. But his fights just were never talked about as much. Even in my, my friend circles who watch and enjoy boxing the way that they do, they never really kind of talked about him in any way, shape, or form. So it, it was it was a pretty interesting time. I wish he would have become he would have become something more, but he's doing a great job on commentary now. So like remember we'll we had Steve on the show? Remember we had, remember we had Steve Kim on the show? Yeah. And um he was talking about it. there was one time when he actually he'd won the Super Six. That's the thing he keeps saying he wasn't promoted. He he was in this highly promoted Super Six. He was a Jordan brand athlete. And then he had a chance to fight um I forgot the guy's name, but he had beat Carl Froch. And basically Carl Froch fought this guy and it reignited his whole career because Andre Ward says, I need to be the A side. I'm not going over there to fight anybody. I'm not taking less money. You're not talking to me a certain way. I'm the champ. I'm the A-side. I'm undefeated. You, you come to me with respect. You offer me options. You don't tell me something to do. And while I respect that, given what he's accomplished, to a certain degree, he hindered his own career because he was only going to take the fights that he felt were right. And that, that's his right. He's in there taking those punches. But not taking those risks and not extending himself ultimately held back his own career and how he was viewed by other fighters. He didn't take chances. He said, that wasn't my job to take chances. It's not my job to be exciting. It's not my job to entertain y'all. My job is to win. Okay, you can do that. But there's a, just like there's a price for being exciting, there's a price for fighting dumb, there is also a price for doing it the right way and being super technical and, and, and um, high class and non, um, non-exciting or non-dramatic. You know, you stay away from drama, you stay away from, from disrespecting your family or disrespecting the sport, 
but you, your paychecks take a hit, and uh, so does your reputation to a certain degree. You're very true about that, sir. You're very true about that. Um, so we're going to go ahead and close out today's show. We're at a little bit more than an hour. Why don't you let everybody know what you're working on there, Sean? Um, just usual. I, I think I'm going to finish up my Black Lightning thing. Um, I think Cobra Kai starts in, like, what, another month or so? In January, maybe? In January, sir. So I'm really thinking about doing a – doing a part in breaking down the two styles of karate just like for the fan i I just think people i think people would pay attention i know it's not comic books but i think a lot of people would pay attention to it i think it's a popular show and i think a lot of people would be interested in because there's a lot of people who like martial arts movies who know nothing about martial arts so they might want to have a better understanding of the styles and and how those styles are exhibited by the uh the people practicing them practicing them in the show well sir that's going to be pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to that. And um, myself, as usual, I'm coming a lot of uh, professional wrestling. There's, there's, a, there's, it's crazy. It's the end of the year, but there's still a lot going on that's worth talking about. So I really got to break down a lot of that stuff for sure. Um, but programming note, as I said at the start of the show, this is the last podcast we'll be doing through the end of 2020. So. We will be sure to promote this one, but we also will be promoting our return on January 5th. So please come back and check us out then because there's probably going to be a lot of MMA to talk about between now and then and some pro wrestling as well. I talk about that on the other show um, as this week. But as always, thank you for everyone who's been taking the time to support our work. This has been a big year for us as as a whole. Uh, We've done a lot of growing. Our episodes have been getting a lot of um, interaction. So we thank everybody for that. And I mean, we had a goal this year of hitting, I think it was 150 subscribers and we're ending the year, we're ending this show at 252. So we thank everyone for taking the time to listening to our show, subscribing to our content. And we will be back um, early next year, hopefully better year. Everyone will be in a better place and we're all going to enjoy this ride together, everyone. So take care. uh, Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. uh, Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. All that good stuff. And we'll talk to you guys on January 2nd or January 5th. It took you a long time to come around for the show, but we appreciate it. It took you all a while. We're glad to have you. It took you all a while, but we thank you all (laughs) for doing that. So um, we'll be back. And thank you, everyone. And have a great holiday season. And stay safe. Wear your mask. Merry Christmas, everybody.